Welcome to my podcast. My name is Andre Tyson. Today, I want to do another exciting episode for you guys. And this episode that I'm going to do is I'm going to do a feature documentary. And this documentary that I'm going to do is going to cover the whole aspect of reggae music, how it got started. Um, you're going to feature a couple of different artists, um, producer. Um, and then all these guys are going to talk about like, you know, the history of reggae music, how it got started, the rhythm, the blues and all that stuff and how they were able to incorporate all the different beats and create what we now uh, now know as reggae music. And, and it's important because I'm a guy who is from Jamaica. I'm passionate about reggae music. I want to put out good content. And so where I see the music is today and know where came from and just how the music is so much more than the rhythm and the blue it's our identity this is how people know jamaica this is how jamaican is known around the world it's one big part of that is the music and so this documentary that i'm going to feature on this particular segment is going to cover everything about reggae music so hopefully you guys can enjoy it and appreciate all the different things that i wanted um, bring forth to all my listeners. So, without any further ado, I'll go ahead and. Music, you know, it's the it's the lifeblood. It's like lifeblood of the people. Like oil, oil is to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> One in their wildest dreams would ever have thought that a small island like Jamaica has now been able to create a music that is part of the mainstream. We need it, we must have it. The music is something like a gravity, like a magnet. <laughs> it insists to 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 hold on to you. I've been touched by an angel. Forward, march. <laughs> August 5th, 1962, Princess Margaret finally pulled down the Union Jack after more than 300 years of British rule in Jamaica. The soundtrack to this newfound freedom was the first truly Jamaican music, the newly invented ska. Because the time has come and we can have some fun, so take a run. You know, it was just a simple song and the people them jump to it and you know going around and then, whoa 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 we're independent and they, you know flash them hand and it was great that was something to see and never can come back in Dominica. Independence came at that time when Scare wasn't in speak. Yes. And so it was just jubilation all around. You understand? You know, with the, with the acceptance that we were now a free country and Scare in its peak. I mean, everyone just went 
but I'm crazy for it. You couldn't go to a party before 62 to play ska. After that night, you, you had to play ska for the party to be successful. It was unbelievable. Everyone gravitated to it. This was something new, and I noticed something too. They had pride. They, when they looked at it, they said, this is ours. It would have been nice to say, well, independence caused people to want their own music, but the music preceded independence. But it was a wonderful coincidence because independence gave it further drive. The music came first. The story of modern Jamaican music starts in the early 1950s in the poorer areas of downtown Kingston with the emergence of a uniquely Jamaican phenomenon. Still at the heart of the music 50 years later, the sound system. is essentially a street discotheque with speakers big enough to raise a family in. It's where poor Jamaicans have been coming to dance till they drop ever since they stopped listening to jazz bands in the now ruined clubs all over the island. You had sound system before recording. You have the, first it started, the Jamaican music started up with orchestra dance. But when the sound system came in, they replaced the musician because people used to hire these bands to play, but the musician used to stop and eat a lot of porridge, goat, so it, it, it burned up a lot of time and thing, you know. Band were intermission, and intermission forever. So the people had to get fed up of this no dance, for them not dance. So in the intermission, they made a mistake. They agreed that the first sound system should play in the intermission. That was the end of them. I never turned back. It was all about rhythm and blues. rolled on, the music of Fats Domino, Ray Charles and Louis Jordan was streaming into the island from Southern American radio stations just over 90 miles away. And with the sound systems blasting it out most nights of the week, downtown Kingston went dance crazy. And like any craze, it was rich with opportunity. People used to make money from it. You sell your own beer and you sell your own curry goat and rice and you got the sounding system from 8 o'clock till like 6 in the morning, and they eating and dancing in the street. You get like two, 3,000 people, and you make a bump. Sound systems became the biggest local industry in downtown Kingston, and competition was fierce. To pull in the punters, you had to have the best music blasting out of your system. The race was on for the hottest American tunes. He's the Ricky sensation. You know, American people, they need cheap labor, so they bring with cotton cane and things. But why are they cutting cane? If you buy rhythm and blues, six times in more money you get before you're going to sell it back to sound system people. So everybody anxious to go to the farmer, but not for cut cane. They want to go buy some record. <laughs> you know? Out of this fierce competition, two giants emerged, Clement Coxon Dodd and Arthur Duke Reed. 
Combining their liquor businesses with their sound system dancers, they were effectively the barons of downtown Kingston and would continue to control the Jamaican music business for the next 15 years. They could run the country those days because people, had, where anywhere they sound string up, you have the crowd of people there before. They used to play in, in competition. It come in now like um, Joe Fraser and Holly. Joe Fraser is a man who go on this dance and go out the gate and him get everybody out of the gate money for coming on him dance, you know? And the people ever leave all the cocks and dance and come on the Joe Creed. Sometimes them just take the money and go to the cocks and dance just to see him, you know what I mean? So it's like that. So. All of them used to be at war, you know? Uh, the sound system thing, man. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a traditional thing. You, you can't stop it. It has like to come from way back, you know? Come on. Yes, suddenly rum is served to sophisticates because suddenly Jamaican rum has regained its place among the great drinks of the world. Duke, we had a rum there when it don't sell in the stores. If you think rum is strong, you ask about rude to your parents. When you throw water, you know what happened? Yes. Throw chasing it. Everything happened. The smoke. The smoke. Vapors thing. Right? And that is what the bread of my drink. Like they have cocaine now, that was for them cocaine. So after you give them two drink a root to your parents and send them grack hacks and dance. A dance done. People are jump fence to get out the fast fast. <laughs> He had a program on the radio, I think, 4.30 on a Saturday afternoon called Treasure Isle Time. They would advertise the liquor business, and then he would, on those programs, they would play newly made Jamaican records. They decided to drink some more, but when I look at the clock, to promote their sound systems, Reed and his competitors had turned to record producing by the end of the 50s, but not as we know it today. They had no intention of selling records to anyone else. They brought jazz musicians down from the tourist hotels to play Jamaican versions of American R&B, and then they just made one copy of each record to play on their sound system and achieve the much-prized exclusive. We start imitating the rhythm and blues songs like say Smiley Lewis or Professor Longyear or Louis Jordan and you know those kind of beat we tried to imitate it it didn't turn out that way so we decided to keep this as our own type that's how that can come in was really rhythm and blues. What we did to this rhythm and blues is like you'll be doing one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But this kind of we change it to one, two, three. And then it's more two, four, two, four, instead of one. Thank you. 
Jamaica first musical revolution. And we call it Skia. And then Skia was a dirty word. But what it was, it was um, terribly influenced by Jamaican activities of the people, you know. Culture Jamaica was pushed into it. And when the people took it on that fast, right, they just grabbed to it because it was them. This is the way of life of the lower class people. We haven't got anything else. What else do we have? I mean, the middle class or the upper class can uh, buy a ticket and go to Miami or somewhere like that. That's all you have. You don't know anything else. You would not find the creative force that comes out of the inner city in the residential areas in Jamaica because they are more settled into a pattern, into a tradition. Well, there's a social divide and a cultural divide. We live in two countries. When Ska was popular downtown, it had no popularity uptown. In 1960, much of uptown Jamaica still preferred American music, and many of the jazz musicians who had invented Ska were making a living playing the tourist resorts of the North Coast. Of a serious type of class prejudice in those days, let's call it that way, <laughs> you know. And it would have hurt my career in a certain sense. You couldn't go uptown and play ska music, so it was really like a, an outlaw type of music, you know. In 1960, Prince Buster started his own sound system. To steal a march on his rivals, he approached the ultimate outcasts of Jamaican society, the Rastafarians, who since the 30s had looked to Africa rather than Europe as a model. He persuaded Count Ozzy and his master drummers down from the Warwicka Hills into a recording studio. At those days, if you say he's a Rasta, all the avenues is black for you now. And when I make Carolina, that the Rasta would Rasta speak. Because now, them, it was not the music world, them could play upon sound system. And if you play upon sound system on the island, everybody go hear you. In the early years in Jamaica, the Rastafarian community went under so much pressure, you know. At one stage, I'm harder. I think there was a decree in Jamaica. Mm, to kill the Rasta man. Kill the Rasta man and question him after, man. you know. In Count Ozzy. Count You know, 90% of the grassroots music that's really played are created by the Rasta people, you know. Rasta and Jamaican music have been inseparable ever since. Even at the independence celebrations, Count Ozzy and his troupe were part of the pageant laid on for Princess Margaret, whose reaction remains unrecorded. We brought with us most of the music of Africa, the rhythm the kumina as a form of dancing, the Nabingi drumming by our Rastafarians. To that has been fused some of the jazz influences emanating from our sisters and brothers in New Orleans. Culture has been a very strong element in 
all our art forms, but particularly in our forms of musical expression. Developed from was a uh, calypso. Well, calypso singers sing about, they sang about, well, lots of them used to sing about sex, but they also sing about um, topical things like that. So it's coming out of that. Well, you want to know what's going on? I mean, you know, you listen to the songs. It is a kind of folk music. Our country contested at the Lyceum the title Miss World. They numbered 40. The emerging nation was full of optimism, and with prosperity increasing, everybody wanted to own the ska records that up until now they only had heard on the sound systems. We started buying Jamaican records. Jamaican records was accepted as the record um, to buy, because you're hearing yourself, you're hearing things to do with you. Eager to capitalize on this new market, the sound system operators reinvented themselves as record companies. Prince Buster's Voice of the People, Duke Reed's Treasure Isle, and initially the top label Coxon, run by the taciturn Clement Dodd. He was the first to realize that you could make a living beyond the sound system. With his profits, he set up the legendary Studio One, the first recording studio in Jamaica to be owned by a black man. Studio One was um, a permanent place that um, people recorded almost every day. We, we were always free to go there and record whenever we feel like. And these are the kind of facilities that you got that made it a special place, you know? Because it's just like home, musically. like Jamaica's Motown. That's where all the great artists, you know, we say they graduate at this place, Studio One. It was like a nine to five job. We went there early morning and we would record all day. And I went in there at seven. I used to live at Mr. Dad's house with his children. Yeah. So every morning, I'd go to the studio with him and open the studio. He would pick up a, 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 an assistant, his name is Bim Bim. Yes, Bim Bim. Pick up Bim Bim first. We we'll go to the studio, we we'll open the studio, and make his rounds. Already we we'll close the studio every night, drop Bim Bim home. It's like, like heaven. Just like in the old days of the sound system, Coxon constantly needed new sounds to stay ahead. Every Sunday morning, young hopefuls gathered in his yard, hawking their songs and looking for a shot at the big time. The longest will see the Listen to all them guys go up and sing. You know, and every time, but 
you know, we would sing around around the side, you know, and they would say, You're so good in you know? And every time they say, You're a turn man. So no, make them go and make them go. <laughs> I, I I saw Coxon himself did an audition, right? Or some auditions too, before I started that. And he would tell artists that he figured weren't ready or didn't want them back. He said, Okay, um, Come back seven years' time, you know? <laughs> it was six o'clock in the evening. I was the last person to go up. You know, the place was still packed. And, you know, my first song, You got to be sure of a woman's love. Everybody crowd around, man. Everybody say, You love her, you say, You love her. <laughs> Everyone crowd around, you know, and Mr. Dad say, Nice, and you know? then the Tuesday. I went on to my first two songs. Another group of youngsters signed by Coxon were the Whalers, Bunny Whaler, Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. In 1964, within a year of Studio One's opening, they sold an astonishing 70,000 copies of Simmerdown. It was vibrant with a lot of activities. The place was like a, what do you call it, like a Piccadilly. Like, 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 like Hollywood. Music has been the center of attraction. Everybody was singing like a family. So if the soulets have a recording, you'd have Bob, Peter Bonnie, Delroy, you know, guys from the Paragons, everybody would come to give background support. If the Whalers have a session sometime, you would have the Ask Us Girls come work with us tonight. We have two children listening, look at all the harmony. So that was like fun. We weren't being paid, because Coxon, we didn't even get money that time. Sometimes we get money to buy us a patty or cocoa bread, and if we're going on Fridays, we would get a pound or 30 shilling or something like that. But we didn't have a problem. <laughs> It was a very productive period in Jamaica's musical history. Hit after hit, you know, every month there would be a new hit for different singers. And it, it, it was as if all the singers and the, the talent in popular music had been kept locked up in a cupboard. But from the first hit was made, it is as if the cupboard doors opened and all this talent just poured out. Studio One's music was made downtown for downtown people. The musicianship necessary wasn't that easy to achieve if you were poor in Kingston. But luckily, there was also a downtown academy. If Studio One was Motown, the Alpha Boys School was the Juilliard School of Music.
from boys' school is a school that caters to the unfortunate. It teaches them trades that they can earn a living after they leave here, and some go abroad. I think you met Rico Rodriguez. He's a trombonist. My mother wouldn't angle me no more, and that's the way I end up in Alpha. Maybe she feel I'm more protected up there. The young man, him grow very quick, him, him, you know what I mean? Him, him become very wise, very quickly. You understand? Know, yeah. A life, tough life, you know. Life hard. Okay. And out of, out of poverty, bring it wisdom, you understand? My parents abandoned me, but I thank God for that in some reason. Ali said, I must honor thy mother and father, but I still love her. And in the future, I'd like to find her. So, at Alpha, Alpha is good. I learn music, and I also learn education. Many of Jamaica's greatest musicians have been from Alpha. Coxon in particular was quick to appreciate the value of the kind of discipline and ability you might expect from that institution. The backbone of his house band were largely alpha old boys, and they became the first superstars of Ska, the Scatolites. Oh yes, the Scatolites. That was Johnny Moore. He is touring France now and Lester Sterling, he's in America. Tommy McCook was very good at that. He was a saxophonist. You had Don Drummonds. He was very quiet. He loved his instrument. And when he was Still in school, he was about the best trombonist in Jamaica. Scatterlights were a great set of people. At the time, they were the masters. They were learned musicians. They were not just people who played music by, you know, by the breath. They were doing it by the paper. And we the whalers were really enthused to be to have been working with the scatterlights. There came on the scene this talented aggregation, the most formidable array of talent which Jamaica has ever seen in a single band, and dare I say is ever likely to see in the future. They were it. Anywhere they played. For, for dances, the place would be Ram Jam. We play at a place one night and say the place loaded with people and a woman come and dance this girl. And I'm watching that woman dance and we see she kick back. And when we finish playing go out, I hear the woman die, they take her out. 
disgusted that you dropped them on dead. <laughs> so you're a steam rat. What's well, so a skunk killer? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Disgust. Get a light, carry a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah, man. Two years after independence, with the Scatterlights at their peak, was the golden age of Jamaican ska. But the foundations of the band were shaky. They became frustrated with the insularity of the Jamaican music scene. And more significantly, Don Drummond, the band's greatest genius, was slowly losing his mind. Drummond's virtuoso trombone playing lay at the heart of the Scatterlights' greatest moments. A lot of his compositions were minor chord tunes, smooth, more melodic kind of flow, while Rico would be more brassy and more like orchestrated, like, you know, to the beat. Don slides with it. Drummond took Scare to new heights of virtuosity. He had a unique style with a disturbing emotional undertow that reeked of Africa and mirrored the demons in his head. He got in friendship with this lady and um, he didn't like her dancing and so that brought a sort of a bone of contention between them. Jealousy and the lack of material and career advancement built up disastrously in the mind of the introspective Drummond. And on New Year's Eve 1964, he killed his girlfriend, Margarita. I used to say to myself, I wonder if he's really guilty of doing, doing, doing that act. But they, they, they found him guilty and then they placed him in the, the madhouse, Bellevue that is. And after a while, he had some altercation with somebody there, or with people there, and for some fuss, and he died. I was sorry to hear, because he was such a great musician. Very, very great, regardless of, of how mad he was. Without Don Drummond, the Scatterlights were never quite the same again. And anyway, musicians couldn't make that much money in Jamaica. To make a living, many of the most talented musicians joined the thousands of other Jamaicans on the boat to England. You know, so I'm not changed from Jamaica for me. me uh, I've played music a long time and I really play with my band or nothing, you know. So coming to England, try out my luck. To the newly arrived Jamaican, London nightlife was a strange and often unnerving experience. When you go there, you know what they was playing. Bottoms up and the choo-choo-choo and all these kind of things. Knees up. Are you coming from Jamaica where you used to? So we couldn't take it. And the jazz club, well, it's never on. Every club you go in London is 
Sorry, you, you gotta be a member. Won't let you in. Once you're black, you can't get in. You know what I mean? You couldn't get into Ronnie Scott, you couldn't get into Lions Carnhouse, the big jazz club. So then I said to Vinny, look, you build a sound, we will support you and get the record like Jamaica from America. And this is how it starts. My parents were only here five or six, seven years until 1965. So it was almost like a letter from home hearing rhythms, rhythm tracks from Jamaica. Shabins and blues Shabin, dances yeah, weren't no. just exclusively for, no, for people. people. Yeah, it started you know. off exclusive. It yeah. started off. But they were in their certain areas yeah. as well. I mean, yeah. you worked, um, you worked on the yeah. buses, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, you were the conductor and the driver's white. And then you, you you know you can't help but being together all day long, right? And you talk about what you do for recreation, and, this is, and then you say to the to the driver, look. We're having a party over so and so and so and so. And he comes around and thinks, oh, that's nice, isn't it? And he tells another few of his mates of it. Little Miss Muffet, she sat on a tuffin, eating her curves and whey. Came a big spider, sat down beside her. He frightened Miss Muffet away. Watch out. We used to go down to number nine Millennium Crescent, where was a little cafe uh, with a little jukebox, and uh, you'd get some food. And I always remember Car oh, Carolina was on the jukebox, and in back there was a, a kitchen with a chef, and you can get meat and rice. That must have been 1961. She saved me a shot from Alpha, gave me the money to come to England. I was like our number one boy, like best boy then, you know what I mean? And she used to look after me in school very good. He took the trumpet. Uh, he was very helpful because I used to send him to my brother's store and so on. He used to do shopping for me. There's this great cultural mix. And at the same time, Buster came over from Jamaica and we had access to uh, West Indian records. Greatly yeah. opened areas because the British market, I mean, British record releases was pretty limited at that time. You know, we were hearing cover versions. You had to hear the original. Yeah, we had, we had access to the real thing. You felt like you were at the start of something. Yes. Yeah. By 1962, the scene was big enough to move from West London to the West End. Soon, Count Suckle's The Roaring Twenties in Carnaby Street became one of the hippest venues in town. It was a late night dive. Maltese, prostitutes, striptease girls, the whole of the West End. Everybody, white, musician, because they come down, the Rolling Stone, there was scruffy, all of the stones. Because they used to play round the corner at a club called The Scene in Wilmill Street. 
downstairs. A girl named Sandra used to run it. People was like coming at five in the morning, six, and that's when I met Christine Keeler, Mandy Wright Davis, and Perfumer. I mean, I didn't know he was a minister at the time, but he just come down with the girls. Well, we used to say he was a sugar daddy. I remember the road 20s, sometimes it's 20 of us, you know, 20, 50, you know. And going home was a problem so far. We couldn't get no taxi to go home. Sometimes we have to walk, you know. Sometimes we don't really get thirsty, you know. So you drink all the milk and the orange juice inside, you know. Yeah. So you have a lot of fun, you know. Like you're so tired coming from the dance, you know, the snow, you know. So it was an experience in the 60s, and then just come here, you know. You know, I wonder when I come the first time in England, I remember. First time I leave Jamaica, right? When I come over London, I look through the plane. And I wonder if people live here. You know, your story books. I read so much about three little pigs and the wolf. And you see, the trouble is, draw the house in the book. Then when I come in, you know, all the house that look like Pure that house. <laughs> <laughs> we hide, we hide the ear, and you look down. It's pure that kind of house. I said, oh yes. And I look for the wolf, no kind. <laughs> <laughs> was distributed on the Blue Beat label, which was how it became known. Blue Beat was the music of choice for the mods, the scooter-riding youths who flocked to the concerts and made Britain a hugely important market for the music. They saw me as a rebel and identified themselves as such. So there was some compatibility there. I think so, because... You, you should see them, but I'm not sure. It's just come like me and them as one. And then protect her right through the tour. By 1964, Jamaican record entrepreneur Chris Blackwell was convinced he could get a UK hit with a Scar record. He had the right singer in Millie Small, so he brought over Ernest Wranglin to London to provide the spark. spot you was listening to a couple blue beat tunes and, and stuff like that you know and then um, the biggest breakthrough was when you know Millie Smalls came out with My Boy Lollipop and I think that changed everybody started to get hits in England 
because that's where it became an international music, especially with my boy Lollipop by Millie Small, that put us on the map. So the uptown people started to take note to make it a national sound rather than downtown sound. Yes, this is ska, original and indigenous. These instruments are playing a monotonic grassroots rhythm. As Uptown Jamaica and the rest of the world joyously accepted Ska, downtown the music and the mood were changing. The Ska was upbeat. It expressed how the, the spirit of the people was. And then after, people start to observe and say, oh, this independence, I'm not really independent. What's going on? The music slowed down. Let's rock it steady and see what's going on. Slow down. Poverty breeds crime. You wake up in the morning and you don't know where next meal is coming from. You know, all kind of things start going through your mind. For if he's rough, he's against the world. Downtown Kingston was a lawless place. This was the era of the so-called rude boys, the ruthless gangsters who terrorized the nation. And the rude boys are coming out dance, man. Now carry you dress in a three-piece suit. Them guys that change things, them just come in our shorts and no shirt and hard turn up back way and the girls flap them and them just do so. That's how rap said the name did come in, you know? And the DJ have to play when he reach, he say, cry tough with Alton Ellis and anything you can do, I can do it better. I am the toughest and I'm throw a box of beer in the air and it mash. This guy come to me and said, his name Busby, he was a rude boy. When I say rude, I mean rude because he would travel with gun and he travel with knife and he would take any buckle and cut you, anything. Come to me one day and say, boy, I hear everybody has seen rude boy cry tough and oh seven and them guys. I want you to make one of me. You just want to boost me and I want it by Friday. And so I said, okay, I'll make you a song, sir. Strong like lion, we are iron. Rude is on fear. Busby, listen and say, play it back. And so when we reach strong like lion, we are and just take out two of the beer and throw it against the wall and crash it and say, I am. Everybody getting panicked now, you know, because they're afraid of him, because they know him, what he can do from what he won't do. The whole night is the one song, they coming like the dance stop. I don't know if he didn't like the song, what he would do. <laughs> but anyhow, he did love it. Boys, Rudy don't fear. Rougher than rough, tougher than tough. But he didn't love it for long. He didn't love the song for long because he loses life the following day. And we just cut out the road boy songs, them, and said, well, if it's going to cause eruption, just leave it there. All I need from you is a up downtown, people sang, and most of them escaped into old-fashioned boy-meets-girl love songs. This was Rocksteady, Jamaica's first pop music, the era of singers who replaced the largely instrumental ska, and for many it was the most glorious phase in Jamaican music. Never felt this way before, and 
all came from the American um, R&B music, you know, because we're always um, being influenced by the impressions, all them soul R&B groups. We would listen to a Dionne Warwick song and try to sing it exactly as Dionne did it. If you are a group, you would try to study the Supremes, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. If there was a group who comes, comes from abroad to our shores, we would want to go and see them because they have something to teach us. It's a cultural thing for Jamaicans to sing. In the ghetto, you'll find more singers than anywhere else too because, you know, it's a thing that you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing we used to, it's what we could use to pass the time away. It's, it's, it's a thing you use to soothe your, your spirit, your soul, you know. Young Kumpia Wave have been touched by an angel. This heaven and earth could be no hell. I've been touched by an angel. She's on the progressive chart and we saw her feel where she wants. With no confidence and never yet says she can't tend the love you know she have. Healing the broken heart from she coming on my life. Me no stop advance, rearrange my lonely life and turn it right from start. I'm happy with this woman and we will never part. Me know she clever and she smart. I've been touched by an angel. Most of us, we only wanted to hear our voices on the record. To see people, to, to hear it on the radio is a dream come true. To see people dancing and singing to your record for the first time is another matter completely. There was no thought of any money or anything else more than honesty, sincerity, and purity. And that is what I think that music is full of. That, you know, that is why it's lasting so long. songs lived. You know a song man one year straight. Send it for one year, not a little thing like some tune come and yourself for one month and done. Them tune they sell and never ever die. People still buying them. My biggest sales in this store is um what is and I have everything up to date in there. I'm up to date. Rock Steady saw a power shift in the music industry. It was still dominated by the former sound system bosses, but Coxon and Studio One would never be quite the same force again. Many of the artists, like the Paragons, Alton S, and the Melodians, promptly signed up with his old rival, Duke Reed, who still ran his own sound system and realized the potential of the more easily danceable rock steady beat. When the first song came out, like Alton S sing a song called Girl I've Got Today. Doom, 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 doom. And when Duke Reed put on that song, I was there. He had to play the song about one dozen times. And you can see, this guy was very fast. He had to spin, he had to dance, he had to dance in a fast pace. So what we did was, at the time, most of them had the same bass line, because the bass man didn't have enough time to emphasize on his bass line. So what we did was cut it down a little so the bass man could more move his fingers and have a line. So that's how you come to have these ready lines. 
You give him more time to do that. In the sky, he could do that. Reed's Trojan sound system had been notorious for the vicious fights that often accompanied his dances. Experiences which made the ex-policeman the ideal man to set up his treasure house studio amongst the rude boys of downtown Kingston. He was a no-nonsense man. He never harbor any foolishness. Police used to go and come. If, if you was a rude boy, you have to leave your rude boy business outside, right? Then Joe could have seen as I say, was a no-nonsense man. And this is the studio over there, on top. What is studio? You know, it's, it's in here was with a man called Smitty. One of the best in Jamaica. Mr. Smitty, the engineer. Now down here was his liquor store. You have a lot of boxes on the, on the roads, with liquor and drinks and all those, and nobody take anything. Well, you see, Duke, he's respected around the area, and he's well armed. He got at least three guns on him. One long one, one on his hip, and one on his feet. That's Duke, the first gunman in Western Kingston. If Duke even not in the studio, he have a box downstairs in him liquor store. And when everybody upstairs dancing, so boy, this gun, this gun. And out of nowhere, and that, that juke fire shot and the whole shooter get quiet. Do you see the big man? He will run up the stairs. He say to Tom McCook and all those people, what are you playing? I don't want that. I want this. I want that. You know, everybody, got, everybody just shut up and listen to what he said. Then he had a on man, he's dead now, near Marquis. So listen, and you so play it back, Smitty, and quiet and Marcus put out him head like this and said, yes, yes, the boss was right. The two need a 17 there, sir. Rocksteady lasted 18 glorious months, but finally there was no escaping Jamaica's worsening conditions. Bass lines became heavier and the subject matter more socially concerned. And we're going to reggae now. And how we get reggae now? Reggae is a different changing of the drum. We, we, we have the drum playing more burro like. Oh, I don't know if you understand. Like, tap, 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 and change the, the, the bass pattern. If the music even slow, it make it sound like it fast. So that is the reg what the reggae do to the rock steady. And that was it. Reggae, 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 reggae. Reggae was everywhere. Dozens of studios sprang up and sheer volumes saturated the market. Producers needed a new outlet for the music. A guy was working with Island at the time named Dave Betridge come out here and meet me and they invite me over to England in 68 and I see what the people are. England is the gateway to real reggae music. 
Irish market became essential to Jamaican producers with its large and by now settled Caribbean community. When I went to London, Bob and Dan myself, that was when I first learned that Feel Like Jumping was also a big song in England. I was, we were just in Jamaica not knowing what was happening. What was happening was that by the late 60s, companies like Trojan Records had spotted the large underground following that had developed for this new reggae pop music. White kids that were hanging out with the black kids from the same areas yeah. grew up on the music, you know, we were all hearing it. It was just yeah, the fashion of the youth culture of the day. Yeah, know, well, that was it. Where we, thing, I mean, fashion. we only had the youth clubs. You know, I mean, our, nobody was old enough to go to nightclubs anyway. That's it. Trojan Records came to enjoy iconic status as the purveyors of Jamaican music in the UK. They released 2,000 singles in seven years, initially on a fairly small scale, through specialised shops catering to Jamaicans and to white working-class youths who revelled in its danceable beat and outlaw status, the skinheads. You get kicked out of Saturday morning pictures when you're too old for it. Uh, you've got nowhere to go for it, for yourself, so... Somebody said, oh, this got to Strep Lacano. And we're talking about the 60s, sort of the skinhead period, really. And so I used to go to Strep Lacano and listen to music. And we didn't really dance. People did dance, but me and my friends, we used to just sort of hang back and, and just watch, you know, because it was all the skinhead thing, you see. And because they, they never played that music on the radio. So in some ways, for us, it became our music. The Skinners at the time were really into reggae. I mean, they are branding now as what you call a neo-Nazi group that don't like black people and Jews. In my time, I was being protected by the Skinners. Look, I've been to a town that was like Guildford, was a racist town in my time. And this guy said to me, hi, Mr. Black. So I said, hi, Mr. White. And he spit in my face. I said, what the heck? So the kids wanted us to beat him. But I said, no, forget it, man. I just wiped the spit off and that was it. What was happening, it couldn't be denied that this was developing into something that was becoming more and more commercially interesting, commercially successful. As more and more people discovered the music through the clubs. And that was making for all sorts of problems for us because we just couldn't get past, we couldn't get past this door. Long walk to the BBC, but I know I'll make it someday. I think there was a perception um, amongst the reggae labels that the BBC dismissed uh, reggae to a certain extent. To be fair, I think possibly, yes, I think they might have a, a slight case there. Bob Marley and the Wailers failed their BBC audition because in the uh, view of the panel, they didn't know how to play reggae. Which was, uh, well, then you get some kind of, uh, you know, the BBC Dance Orchestra doing a strict tempo version of reggae. People would say, oh, that's, that's how reggae should be. <laughs> if our music had an open door, like, let's say, a freeway, we could be wide in any part of the world because we are class, we have class music like anybody else. We just did that song because 
we were teenagers wearing afros and you know trying to be two conscious black people and we said this is a good cover song for us to do trojan were determined to break reggae to the mass market and pulled out all the stops for their new releases when they introduced strings on the british versions of the songs i think it made quite a difference because they made them more into, not, not so much the raw sound, but would probably be acceptable elsewhere, but it made it more into a pop record, and then went to a much bigger market. Reggae became part of pop mainstream. Skinheads, the BBC, school dances, suddenly everyone was playing reggae. Sounds of soul! Collins went to number one, as did Desmond Decker. Jimmy Cliff, the Scatterlights, Prince Buster and Ken Booth all stormed the charts. And everyone loved it when Max Romeo turned out to be a new kind of rude boy. Because there was the wonderful Max Romeo wet dream thing, which was uh, just such a great pop record. Although, obviously the lyrics, on, you know, you can see why they had a problem with that lie down gal, let me push it up, push it up. I tried to explain, I said, look, man, I'm not, I have nothing to do with sex. I'm talking about my house leaking here. Me and my lady sleeping in bed, rain falling, the, the, leak, the roof is bloody leaking. She's getting up to, 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 to plug the leak, and I'm saying, lie down, girl, I'll push it up. They didn't buy that. <laughs> hey! The last couple of years of the 60s were a reggae explosion. And by 1969, Desmond Decker was filling Wembley like visiting royalty. That reggae pop music, I suppose, you know, we were beneficiaries of it as well, you know. The doors have been opened and people have been softened up enough to to start listening, you know. The music of downtown Kingston had not only conquered Jamaica, but made it to the heart of the old colonial masters. And there was still a great deal further to go. And this is the end of this mix. Again, uh, just a well-documented um, event, um, just the history of reggae music. And uh, that was well done. I enjoyed. Hopefully you guys do too. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you guys.